This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Hey, welcome to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Nick Ashburn. And I'm Cheryl Coolman. And we join you here live every Thursday morning from 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern. We are replayed throughout the week. You can find us also on the SiriusXM app on demand. There's no reason to be without us. Exactly. And, you know, I do want to apologize to our listeners if you listened in last week when I was hosting. <laughs> you can tell that I'm still a little sick, but my energy level was just pretty low. So real apologies there if I was a bit of a Debbie Downer. But uh, I still think we had a great show because our guests were, were yeah, really good. Yeah, had really good guests. And today's a special day, everyone. What could that be? Well, first of all, it's my husband Michael's <laughs> birthday. So happy birthday and to Michael. And I always Michael. remember Michael's birthday because... Because it's Cheryl's <laughs> birthday. Happy birthday, Cheryl. There are balloons popping here, confetti, all that exactly, stuff. Exactly. Big which birthday cake going also, on. Also, we talk, how, uh, talk on the show a little bit about how Cheryl's a bit of an introvert. A lot. <laughs> I hit my five-year mark of working at the Wharton Social Impact Initiative in December. And it's only been within the last year that we've figured out what your birthday <laughs> actually is. So the reason why I sort of do it while we're on the air, because we just figured it out. I'm a woman of many, <laughs> many secrets. Exactly. Um, but thank you all for bearing with me with my sickness. Happy birthday to Cheryl. We're going to have a lot of fun today. We're trying to get uh, her favorite artist out of her, too. So maybe we can play that on an intro or an Leonard outro. Cohen. Leonard Cohen. We might have that. We could do a Hallelujah. Listeners are going, going on here. It's a party on dollars and change. Thank you, Danielle, Thank for you. that. Um, but we do always have a great show in store for you today. We have three guests coming up over the next 90 minutes. And then, of course, we have our open segment at 9.30 a.m. Which Eastern. Which could be everybody calling in to give me birthday wishes. They could. You could One just make... after another. <laughs> Cheryl, we love you. Happy birthday. <laughs> yes, it'll just be people. <laughs> you can tweet at us, you know, at BizRadio1, or sorry, at, yeah, at BizRadio132. And, you know, just All tell sorts of stuff. Cheryl, happy birthday. Um, but our first guest who will join us in just a moment is the founder and CEO of STEM to the Future, uh, Jacob Adams. I'm excited to talk about that. Um, then at the bottom of the hour, we will welcome Rebecca Massasak, the CEO of TechSoup, um, which is an organization that's been around for a long time. Long time. Um, and, but it, it's one of those organizations that you may not know a lot about. So um, they try to get help technology integration within NGOs and nonprofits, right, right. the civil society, uh, civil society sector. So we will dig more into that with her at 9 a.m. here on the East Coast. Um, and our third guest about an hour from now will be Paul Rabinovich, who is a principal of real estate at New Island Capital. So we'll be talking about sort of inclusive economic development and real estate as um, an impact investing strategy. So stick with us there. You can always join the conversation at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Like I said, you can tweet us at bizradio 132. <laughs> Gosh, I am just still on some meds, folks. Um, but also you can shoot us an email, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And Matt, our producer, will be watching those and shooting us your questions throughout the show. So without further ado, I would like to welcome Jacob Adams, the founder and CEO of STEM to the Future. Welcome to the show, Jacob. Hey, good morning. Good morning. Thank you, Nick. Happy birthday, Cheryl. Thank you. <laughs> so I know that you are joining us from the West Coast, so thank you so much. I know it's early on your side. Oh, yeah, yeah. No problem. Uh, very excited to be on. 
Good. Thank you. So um, let's start a little bit more with your background before we start with uh, STEM to the Future. So who's Jacob Adams? Got you. Um, so yeah, I grew up in uh, in Georgia and in, in uh, Augusta and, you know, was for sure going to be a, a lawyer. Just like growing up in Augusta, they're really, like, out of all the careers I was exposed to, the ones I knew were you. Uh, the ones you can make the most money off of were you could be a doctor or you could be a lawyer. Um, it, it's funny enough, I really didn't like science back then. So I was like, I'm a, and I like to argue. So I was like, I'll be a lawyer. Um, <laughs> I, I, I was there once too. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, and I thought it was as simple as that. And so I went to, um, I was going through college and uh, was sitting in my civil rights class. Matter of fact, and I heard one of the students talking about uh, Teach for America. It was my junior year. I never, I never heard of it, um, but it sounded it sounded really like a, a cool program at the time. And our professor was uh, someone I really respected, and he like was uh, he, did, he, had, he had a lot of great things to say about it. And so then I started to look into the program, um, and it was something I was really interested in. I'd really never thought about teaching at at that point. Um, but, you know, I, I did like tutoring and stuff in the, in the community when I was at, um, Swanee, the university of the South and, um, you know, so, and, uh, my first job, matter of fact, was a coach, was a gymnastics coach. So I'd, I'd been working with kids for a while. Um, and so I ended up applying for the program, uh, got in, but then I had to defer. There was this big cheating scandal in, um, Atlanta public schools mm-hmm. at the time. And so I was supposed to teach in Atlanta and I had to uh, defer for a year. And so that year that I was deferred, I was working at a law firm in Atlanta and it took little to no time for me to realize this is not what I want to do. Well, and, uh, and Cheryl, I can definitely tell you that, um, like I said, um, I was thinking about being a lawyer too. Yeah. And it was one of those moments where I worked for a lawyer and I was like, peace, mm, I'm out. Like, this right. is not happening. Not taking um, but you know, and our, and our, um, marketing communications manager, Nisa worked for teach for America right. for a while. Exactly. So. And we're, we're glad to have stolen her from teach for America and brought her on our team. And it's one of those, it's one of those programs where, you know, I, I think it's really good to hear, um, Jacob talk about this, that, um, in re- in reality, like Teach for America, it he ended up having a special gap year, but really yeah. also thinking through that it, it allows you to sort of think through what you might want to do yeah. before you get a master's or, or graduate level degree. Yeah, and and one of the things that that I'm looking forward to hearing from Jacob about is um, how we have such as children we have such a limited range of jobs that we think about. Right? It's the Doctor, ones we see: lawyer, teacher, astronaut. If you're fa- <laughs> astronaut, exactly. And so part of this, I think, is sort of really understanding not just how you um, train kids in certain things, but how you open their minds to all the different opportunities. Because I think some of that starts really young. I wanted to be a vet, and then I worked for a vet. Yeah. So yeah. Jacob, you worked with um, a lawyer, and you were like, mm, "Not for me." Is that right? Uh, yes, yes. Uh, and then even the lawyers were like, this, this, this isn't for them. <laughs> so, um, but, you know, there is there. So I was like, all right, so I duly noted. And so that was always in the back of my mind as I, you know, went to, to teach. So I ended up moving to New York to teach. Oh, so you didn't point, do it in Atlanta? Like, no, I deferred. I was like, I, I wanted to try something new. Mm-hmm. Um, I lived in the South my whole life and was able to get Teach for America to transfer me to New York. And so I moved to Brooklyn and knew like two people. Um, but it was a great experience. Is really I don't imagine I would I wouldn't uh, be here if it wasn't for that for that time. 
And so, Jacob, um, were you, um, you know, I think Teach for America, you know, they place people in a lot of different disciplines, but especially in math and science or, or STEM fields, um, science, technology, engineering and math. Yeah. So is that where your focus was or what did you teach? Uh, no, actually, it was uh, I was teaching first grade. In oh, Brooklyn. OK. Yeah. And there used to be a place on the application where you could check um, like if I get placed in this subject, uh, I would probably would accept the offer. I remember being really close to check at elementary school because I couldn't imagine working with um, students like elementary school. And now that's, you know, I've pretty much dedicated the past six years of my life to it. Um, so it quickly turned into my like favorite, uh, like grade levels. And but I have I to ask, I have to ask just quickly because you sort of slipped it in there. You, you also coach gymnastics or are you a gymnast? Oh, yeah, I was. Wow. The first sport I played um, pretty much up until high school. And my mom was like, all right, this is getting a little too dangerous. <laughs> so then I played football. Uh, oh, that's... You went from gymnast to football. <laughs> right. <laughs> all right. Well, we, we won't go into that. <laughs> it, I, I'm a, I, I miss gymnastics. I did gymnastics when I was little, too. So that's why that. I sort of – I know. See, I keep secrets, too, Cheryl. I did Cheryl. a little, too. <laughs> but, okay, so now you're teaching first grade in Brooklyn. What's going on? So, yeah, I'm at a charter school um, pretty far out in, in Brooklyn, uh, in Brownsville, Brooklyn. And the school is just very, very rigid. Like the students had to sit with their hands, you know, folded a certain type of way. They had to have, like, their feet flat on the ground. Breakfast was always silent. Just so many different things were, were controlled throughout the school day. Oh, my gosh. Um, do, you, do you remember that movie Matilda? like that's what i have in my mind is that the school that matilda had to go in mrs trunchbull or whatever was the principal right it definitely uh felt that way oh my except the students i don't think they they didn't have magical powers they 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 did but that's just that's a state different of uh magical powers yeah and, and they kind of the school also emphasized like joy in a in a i guess kind of contradictory way um so the students would seem to be to be happy despite like being in this very like controlled uh environment you will feel joy (laughs) right right it was a core value it was like well we're not even practicing it uh as a school but the school and i also think a lot of that joy came from the fact that the students would excel on like any anything academic Mm -hmm. so you know they knew they were very smart they knew um, like through their test scores and through the types of conversations they were able to have that like their academics were, were ended up being like some of the highest in all of New York. So, you know, consequently, any given day, there could be like 30 to 50 people at our school coming to take notes about what we were doing and then taking that back to the school they were starting or the school they were already working at. And so was this school, you, you said it was a charter school, um, the socioeconomic backgrounds of the students um Given that it was so rigid, like what was what did that look like? Oh yes, yeah. so it's probably ninety eight, ninety nine percent could be all the way up to one hundred percent free and reduced lunch. Mm. Um, like ninety nine percent black students, uh, mostly like right there in Brownsville, which is like a very underserved community. Okay, and so you're you're teaching first grade. You know, students do well academically. It's not a great culture is what I'm sort of getting from you, at least from, from your opinion. Um, so what, what, what were some of the big lessons that you were taking away from sort of from a 
pedagogical perspective, I think, and on bringing one those hand. to Tech to the Future. Yeah, the and future, then, like, yeah. thinking about where you were going to go after Teach for America. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, one thing I did learn was that, like, uh, like having high expectations of, of students mm-hmm. and not, like, in a... Uh, like not in a way where you have expectations that are unattainable, but just kind of realizing that, you know, these kids are extremely bright. They're like full of potential, but you, you know, you, and you have to like help, help put them on a path and like help them kind of grow and nurture that potential, um, you know, in a way where they'll be able to uh, learn and grow as, as, as individuals. So that is like one thing I learned um, that I still, it's like very, very prevalent and still to the future. Um, but then also that school should – it really kind of changed the whole way I thought about education to the point sure I was making earlier. Um, you know, we really weren't exposing students to any careers. They weren't really learning skills like how to talk to each other or how to solve complex problems. You know, these are the ones we told them. Um, you know, how, how to think critically, uh, how to, like, empathize with other folks, be able to express those, like, creative – you know, those creative muscles – uh, and so I, just more and more, I was, I was there, and being a teacher in America, I was more or less like, kind of stuck there. I even could have left, but there would have been like, serious financial implications. So I ended up leaving as soon as my two years were over. Um, but it, it just really reshaped the way I kind of – or it kind of brought to, to my eyes like, what our education system uh, was doing. And, and, you know, this was a school that was receiving all types of accolades, and I thought, you know – at best, like we're we're putting the kids on track to be worker bees and be able to go work for folks who are probably already making a lot of money. Um, and the kids, you know, might might make a decent might make a decent living, but at the end of the day, they're they're being trained to just like follow orders, which is very very scary to me. So then you go into deciding that you're going to launch STEM for, STEM to the future. So tell us a little bit about what that program is like and how it addresses some of those concerns that you just raised. Oh, yes. So uh, we fast forward. I was in New York for a little while for a few more years still teaching. And then I moved to L.A. uh, where I was like training and and coaching teachers. And I've seen a lot of the same things in the the schools I was going to out here where, uh, you know, seeing a lot of good things, definitely not the same type type of rigid culture, but there's just a lot of, gaps when it came to students being able to find out what they're passionate about, you know, being exposed to a lot of different pathways uh, and professions and being able to learn like these more 21st century skills. It's like seeing that gap uh, and knowing I really wanted to continue to work in education. I started, uh, that's why I'm starting STEM to the future. So we primarily work as an extended learning program. So we do like after school uh, programs for students ages 4 through 11, primarily black and Latinx students in L.A. and in, um, in Augusta. And we also do professional development for, for educators with the mission being to empower uh, black, Latin, black and Latinx students ages 4 to 11 to see and use technology as a means of liberation. So not just learning these skills so they can one day go, you know, be a developer or engineer at one of these huge tech firms, but actually helping them, uh, you know, learn learn those skills, but then also developing this mindset that will, uh, you know, encourage them to use those skills to uplift themselves and, and create things that uplift the community. So we do a lot of exposure to try to expose students to as many different, you know, uh, pathways as possible. So we end up doing a lot of like coding, robotics, 
uh, in engineering, like design thinking, filmmaking, uh, like music production, uh, cooking classes, uh, teaching kids about like healthy foods, and so on and so forth. You know, so even with all those different, uh, you know, also learning about the natural science, microbiology. Um, and then even with all those different lessons, students are getting exposed to several different, you know, pathways and professionals and skills all at the same time. You're listening to Dollars and Change on Sirius XM 132, business radio powered by the Wharton School, and we're speaking with Jacob Adams, the founder and CEO of STEM to the Future. So, Jacob, let's bring this down to a more concrete level. So let's say I, my, I decide to enroll my four-year-old into STEM to the Future. What? What kind of activities will you be doing with her? Got you. Uh, so that's like just yesterday we had a um, we had a, a workshop at the at a library in Hawthorne, uh, California, which is like uh, south south of LA, and the students were learning about the engineer and uh, engineering design process, and they were building uh, aerodynamic cars that's using kind of like uh, everyday materials. And from there, they were able to race the cars and kind of see what um, – and then be able to, to notice which cars are – have discussions around which cars are faster, which cars are And try are to figure out why. Sorry? And, and then, then, then they can try to figure out why some cars are faster and slower than others, right? Right. Yeah. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, and then they go back and they make those changes, and then they come back and race up one more time. Uh, and we had some kindergartners there yesterday, so it's, uh, I guess like five-year-olds, but – also, with four-year-olds, we have um, we do a lot of robotics that are like for pre-readers, where they can like scan different blocks. and I have the robots like uh, complete different dances, or have them like drive around different parts of the room, or um, have them solve different challenges. We also uh, have a coding program where we have students. Just yesterday at another school um, with our TK students, they were uh, creating their stories through a black coding program. So like four and five-year-olds. And like I was saying, uh, or it's just amazing, you know, once you can kind of give these students a a problem with very few parameters, like the types of things that they're able to produce. That sounds fun. And and so tell I'm I'm going to put on our academic hat a little bit. Ooh, okay. And you know we're we're at a research based institution, um, and and I'm curious. You know, one can imagine like exposure to these topics mean a lot. But do you have a better, a good sense of sort of what like the research shows around exposure to these types of skills uh, versus maybe more rote learning like you had experienced in your first classroom? Uh, yes, for sure. The the research that you know we've been reading shows that the earlier students are exposed to to these types of skills and uh, dispositions, they're much more likely to. Um, you know, to, get, to excel in those in those fields and develop those skills and be able to use them uh, long term. But yet, most, um, especially like a lot of STEM programs, end up starting in like middle school or, or high school. So they've kind of really missed these very uh, like formative years of a, of a student's education in life. Yeah, I was surprised to see that it started at four years old, which kind of on one hand makes sense because they're you know, you want them exposed as early as possible, but it's like, whoa, that's a lot earlier than, than a lot of the other programs I've heard right. about. And and one of the things, uh, Jacob, that I was sort of thinking, to be totally honest, was, gosh, like, don't I know this type of program, you know, from a competitive landscape? Like, mm-hmm. do we need another nonprofit doing this? But I, I guess really at that earlier stage, I don't know right. who's doing that. Right. I, it is generally at the middle and high school age. Oh, right, right. Um, and that's definitely something I've found uh, a lot just in doing kind of like competitive uh, analysis 
is seeing that a lot of works works end up being older. And if they do start in elementary school, it'll typically be you know around third grade. Um, but then, but another thing like we did with four year olds, we are doing a whole robotics unit at a, a school in LA called Altaloma. And so we're doing like 20 weeks of robotics instruction. And the first day, we wanted to like make sure the kids knew what a robot was, like the you know three main parts of a robot. Um, so we went through that, and at the end, we had them design their own robot and, and encourage them to create one that would do something that would you know uplift the community. And so kids were then using Legos with a with a partner. So them and one other student are, are building their own robots, like using these Legos, and then they were coming to the front of the room and they're able to explain what their what their robots do like some kids had robots that would go and you know pick up trash others had robots that like would find they could be on the streets they find homeless people and then they'd be able to take the homeless people to a place where they could be safe and they could get food um others yeah and and jacob you know i want to break this down a little bit um in terms of the demographic that you're serving um so how how do you uh, approach the exposure to some of the concepts, not just the the real scientific concepts, but like you said, talking about what a robot is when someone may not have had the exposure to that in in their sort of day to day lives um, from from their own you know racial or or socioeconomic kind of background. I have no idea what the three main parts of a robot are. Fair enough. <laughs> With the the um, so I guess the. I guess three main parts quickly would be the the ones we've started with are the control system, like the effectors and the sensors. And those are things that are really easy to cool. break down to students because it's kind of that's like the brain, their eyes, their ears, and their hands. So, you know, those are things that they could quickly relate to. There's a lot of nodding uh, in here being like, yeah, yeah, yeah makes that sense. makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right. And then, so, and sorry, uh, Cheryl, could you repeat the other part of the question? Oh, I guess my, my question was just oh, sort yeah, of like, sorry. is it unique? I mean, sorry, there was a sort of a, an assumption in my in my question. Um, but is it unique working with, you know, African-American or Latinx communities? Uh, sometimes, you know, some of the concepts will, will be relatively new to them. And then other times, at least with the robots, we're able to like, they end up seeing robots uh, a lot in everyday life, but they might not even recognize it's a, mm-hmm, it's a mm-hmm, robot. Mm-hmm. But that's the big piece, like them. They may have had exposure to it, but they didn't know what it was, which reminds me to my growing up, we had a lot of friends who, that was back in the MySpace age, so we, we were all creating our own MySpace, and through a lot of that, we were coding and had no clue, you know, what it was. And I have friends now that work so far out of, um, you know, so far away from the tech field, but they had, like, some of the, you know, best-looking MySpace pages, and they <laughs> created it themselves, but we had no idea what we were doing. Yep, so that's yep. just, you know, another big part of it is actually letting the kids know what they're learning and what they can do with it. Well, and, Jacob, one of the things that I, um, I've i read a lot about is is that um, when kids hit, like, junior high, and I think especially girls, junior high and high school, that's where some of the interest in math and science and technology falls out. Um, do you have a sense about what you think we have to do with the older kids in order to keep them interested in these tech careers? Do you think it really is just the uh, exposure in an early age to understand how prevalent it is and the role they can play in it? Or do you think we have to change some of the way we think about education with these older kids to make them um, comfortable with and excited by the, the STEM opportunities. Yeah, I 
So, yeah, I definitely think we have to, one, just kind of change the, the way we think of education. But to answer the first part of the question, um, a lot of it is just, I think, making it much more interactive and much more more relevant to the students and, like, their everyday lives because they're learning, you know, that much of I feel like in middle middle school is when kids are starting to learn a little more complex math, and it becomes even more like steps and routines and procedures, and they have no idea how they're ever going to apply that to their life. And honestly, a lot of this stuff, they, depending on what their career is, they never will use it again, <laughs> um, except in high school, and then that'll be it. So I think that's that's a big part of it. Uh, and kind of like asking ourselves, why are we teaching kids what we're teaching? You know, is it for the sake of them solving problems like if so there's much more like interesting and relevant ways to teach kids how to solve problems than you know teaching some of the you know the math standards that that the schools are required to teach so jacob um how are you thinking about the future of the program in terms of growth or scale so you said right now you're in la and augusta um how are you thinking about the the market needs of your program and where you go next Gotcha. So right now we are uh, continuing to continue our after-school programs and then, you know, also trying to, picking up more after-school programs for the upcoming school year. And then uh, but we also just – it's partnered with an organization out here um, it's called Nine Dot, and we will be conducting uh, professional development for over at least 30 um, – trainers in Los Angeles this year. So those trainers are, they were pretty much work with after school providers. So we'll be training them how to teach and train their staff on, on, uh, on teaching computer science. So that's something that's really exciting for us. Um, I've worked with nine dots before and that was something they, they used to do. And they've now sunsetted that part of their um, organization and they've kind of trained and they've transitioned those or they passed those contracts and those partnerships off to us so that it's been great to meet all the partners over the past few weeks um and you know to be designing some of this professional development it's an exciting possibility in terms of like scale and impact you know just any given day how many folks will be teaching you know uh, several hundreds of students you know through um you know and they'll be coming through our professional development um, but they'll also be able to take that and put their own unique you know, spin on it and provide, you know, use, use their context from their community to make sure they're uh, giving the kids a, a learning experience that is fun, engaging, you know, rigorous, but also relevant to, to them and, and their needs. Yeah. Are, oh and, and Jacob, we're coming to the end of the segment, but I do have a question now, um, and it comes to, you were talking about, you know, partnerships, et cetera. How do you, uh, how do you fund STEM to the future? Is it, is it grants or contracts or what? Um, yeah, so we are a, a nonprofit, but we don't want to be solely reliant upon like donations or grants, just knowing how fluid those could be. Right. So uh, we also charge a program fee to to the schools, and then, cause, and especially now with there being like a starting to be more of an emphasis on on STEM and STEAM, schools are getting more and more of a, a budget. Like the professional development is funded through this huge uh, CDE grant. Um, so so pretty much all of this, um, a combination of grants donations, uh, service fees to parents, but we always offer scholarships if someone needs it. Whatever they, they can pay, they pay. Uh, and then we also charge schools uh, program fees. Great. 
Well, thanks so much for joining us, Jacob. We've been speaking with Jacob Adams, the founder and CEO of STEM to the Future. We're going to take a short break, but stick with us. We're going to be speaking with Rebecca Massasak, the CEO of TechSoup Next. This is Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. Oh, 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 o